Father, we thank you for giving us your holy, inspired, life-giving, all-sufficient, inerrant word. Lord, we confess right now that nothing good will happen in our hearts, our lives, unless you send the Spirit to give us understanding. So, Father, we pray that you would have mercy on us this morning. We desperately want to hear from you. We want to be transformed by sacred scripture. So send your spirit to help us for your glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Three Sundays ago, I walked into Central Park Racket Club at about 2 p.m. in the afternoon. I had just preached two sermons and talked to lots of people before and after church. So I was physically, emotionally, and verbally exhausted. The last thing I wanted to do was talk to anyone. I just wanted to watch my son play his tennis match for his tennis tournament. So I'm sitting there, out of the corner of my eye, I see my friend Mohammed walk in. Mohammed is the father of Arib. Arib is a young tennis star from Kirkland, and I've gotten to know Mohammed over the summer uh, at these tennis tournaments. And Mohammed is a wonderfully kind, respectful, and very aggressive evangelist for Islam. And so we've had several conversations about Jesus. And I thought to myself, there's Mohammed. I'm going to avoid eye contact with him. And to my great shame, I actually positioned myself so he couldn't see me. And I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be a warm, winsome, courageous evangelist. I just wanted to hide from Muhammad and watch my son play tennis. But Muhammad found me. He walked up to me, and I said to him, Salam alaikum, which is a Muslim greeting. He said back to me, Salam alaikum. And he, the first thing he says to me is, Dave, I just watched a YouTube video that proves that Jesus Christ is not God. I was like, all right, Lord, here we go. Muhammad wants to talk, we're gonna talk. So for the next half hour, we had a wonderful conversation. And, and he, this is just common grace, he, he's a wonderfully kind, winsome, non-argumentative person but definitely was trying to evangelize me. And after a long conversation, he said to me multiple times, Dave, I just don't think that Jesus claims to be God. I said, Mohammed, that's so absurd, I'm not even gonna argue this with you. I said, Jesus claims to be God in so many ways, the evidence is suffocating. Well, Dave, give me an example. I said, well, how about John 8, 58? which brings us to this morning's passage. This is one of the strongest claims in all the Bible that Jesus thinks that he's God or claims to be God. And this this particular verse, 858, really is the heart and soul of this morning's passage. Now, this passage uh, lies in John chapter 8, and this is the fourth round of debates in John 8, where the Pharisees are aggressively challenging Jesus about his claims, just like Muhammad was challenging me about Christ's claims. At the very climax of these debates, Jesus makes this incredible statement, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews knew exactly what he was claiming when he said that. 
Now, this text raises the question, what specifically was Jesus claiming in this passage? Well, he claimed two specific things. Both are astonishing. He claimed to be the Savior, and he claimed to be equal with God. Now, I know that many of you know those things this morning. You're very familiar with these claims. But the question is, are you living like these claims are true? I know that many of you believe Jesus is the Savior and that he's God. But again, are you living like those claims are true? Let's look at both these claims uh, in detail this morning. First, Jesus claims to be the Savior. To help us understand Christ's claim, we're going to look at the accusation and the defense. So, what was the Pharisees' specific accusation? They accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. Look with me at John 8, 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, in the previous verses, Jesus told the Jewish leaders that they were children of Satan, not children of God or children of Abraham. So, in response, they say to him, well, we think that you have a demon. Now, why would they say that? They reference uh, the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were a half-breed race. They were a mix of Jews and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so at the time of Christ, the Samaritans were not looked on very highly. Furthermore, the Samaritans were often associated with the occult or the demonic, which is probably why they accused Jesus of being a demon-possessed Samaritan. Furthermore, the Samaritans um, did not believe uh, in the, the Jewish claim that they were the sole heirs of Abraham. So because of all those things, these Jewish leaders accused Jesus of being a demon-possessed Samaritan. Now, how does Jesus respond to these accusations? He says a variety of things in his defense. In his defense, he argues that he's not demon-possessed since he honors the Father. Look with me at John 8, 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. He's simply saying that because I honor the Father, that's evidence that I'm not demon-possessed. If I was demon-possessed, I would not care about the glory and honor of God the Father, but I do care about that, therefore I'm not demon-possessed. In addition, Christ argues that he's not demon-possessed since the Father honors him. John 8:50. yet I do not seek my own glory There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. In other words, he's saying, look, if I was demon-possessed, God the Father would not honor me, but God the Father is planning on honoring me, and he'll, he'll honor me first and foremost when I die and rise and ascend to his right hand. In addition, Christ argues, most importantly, that he's not demon-possessed since he has the power to save from death. In Christ's defense that he's not demon-possessed, he makes this incredible claim. He basically is saying that I can save you from death. John 8, 51. Truly, truly. In other words, what I'm saying is really, really true. It's so true that you can bank your entire life on it. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone, anyone, regardless of wealth, ethnicity, 
part of town they're from. If anyone, male, female, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What a promise. Now, Christ here is not referring to physical death because everyone who's lived since Adam and Eve has died, even the followers of Jesus. But what he's simply saying is, everyone who keeps my word, their soul will not die. The moment you and I become Christians, something amazing happens. God brings resurrection life to our souls. We become alive spiritually. And even though you and I will die physically and our, our body will go on the ground, our soul will never die. And someday when Christ returns, Christ will reunite our body with our soul. But he's making the point here that through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, you and I will never ever experience death in our souls. The Bible says the penalty for sin is death. Jesus Christ suffered and died in our place, experiencing death for us. Therefore, you and I never ever have to fear the prospect of dying. In this specific sense, we will never see death. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the famous pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church probably five or six decades ago. He was there preaching. And his young wife died, I think when she was in her early 30s, leaving him with two or three little girls. And while driving to the funeral, he realized he had to explain to his girls what happened to their mother. And he thought, how am I going to explain to them this idea that although she's dead physically, she's not dead spiritually. So they're in the car, and he pulls up to a stoplight. It's a beautiful sunny day in Philadelphia, and they're sitting there, and he's thinking, what am I going to say to my girls? And this massive truck pulls up next to them, and it blocks the sun and casts a huge shadow into their car. And the shadow is obvious for all those who are in the car. And he says to his girls, girls, would you rather be hit by that truck or hit by the shadow of the truck? And they say, Dad, that's a, that's a silly question. Obviously, the shadow, because the truck will destroy us. And he said, girls, your mother was spared being hit by a truck. She was hit by the shadow. Jesus Christ came to earth. A truck was hurtling towards her. He shoved her out of the way, stood in her place, and was hit by the truck, suffered and died in her place. And now she is only being hit by the shadow. We who believe the gospel will never ever experience death, only the shadow. Yes, we will die someday, unless Christ returns. We will die, but our physical death is just that shadow. Jesus Christ was already hit by the truck in our place. Therefore, we don't have to fear death. Someday our bodies will die, but our souls will never ever die if we are Christians. And then again, someday when Christ returns, he will reunite our bodies and our souls and will dwell forever in eternity with him in glorified physical bodies on this earth recreated in all of its splendor and glory. But don't lose sight of this. 
The reality is, is that all of us will die physically someday. No one can avoid death. St. Augustine famously said, it is not possible not to die. John Blanchard said, death is the greatest fact of life. Sam Waldron said, death is not a spectator sport. While we can't avoid death, Christians don't have to fear death. Jesus died in our place, and our souls will live forever in his presence, experiencing all the joys that God promises us in the gospel. Because of the work of Christ, it is not death for you and I to die. I love the words of this beautiful hymn we're going to sing later this morning that really capture the essence of what Christ has done for us in the gospel to help us avoid the fear of death. The hymn goes like this. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. O oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will find, will in your mercy find, that it is not death to die. As Christians, we don't have to fear death. Isn't that good news? If we don't have to fear death, how should that affect the way that you and I live our lives? Many years ago, I heard an amazing interview with a Romanian pastor who pastored in Romania under communism, where it was illegal to preach the gospel. This pastor was an incredibly fearless evangelist, and he was always getting arrested and threatened with death. And the guards kept saying, if you keep preaching the gospel, we're going to kill you. And he said, fine. If you kill me, two things are going to happen. Number one, I will go straight to glory. And number two, I'll be a martyr, which is bad for you and good for me. <laughs> because folks are going to rally around my cause. So go ahead, kill me. I'm just going to preach, I'm just going to keep preaching the gospel, and you do what you want. I wish that was my mentality. What's the worst thing someone can do to you? Kill you. Then what? You go straight to glory. You go to be in the presence of the triune God where you will experience an explosion of joy for all eternity. That's the worst case scenario. If that's true, you and I should live fearlessly. What do we have to be concerned about? It is not death to die. Well, David, that's true. Shouldn't we all just kill ourselves? <laughs> I've been asked that by non-Christians. No. <laughs> that's murder. 
That's one of the Ten Commandments. And furthermore, God has work for you to do while you're still here. He wants to receive glory in and through your obedience and your sacrifice here in this life. I, I read this quote yesterday, just by happenstance, by Ray Ortland Jr. It's not going to appear behind me, unfortunately. I got it too late. But Ray Ortland says this. During the Victorian era, people talked often about death, and sex was the taboo subject. But now, we talk freely about sex, and death is the taboo subject. Even Christians shy away from talking about death. Then he says, for crying out loud, we're going to heaven. Why should we fear anything? Our Lord, our Lord died and rose again for us. For crying out loud, you're going to heaven. Don't worry about the stock market. I'm sure many of you, like me, lost 20% last year. Don't worry about inflation. You're going to heaven. Don't worry about impressing others. Don't worry about your career. Life is incredibly short. Someday you're going to die. But it's okay because Jesus Christ has conquered death. Not only does Christ claim to be the Savior, he claims even more. He claims to be God. Which brings us to the second point. First, Christ claims to be the Savior. Second, Christ claims to be God. Again, to help us understand this claim, we'll look at the accusation and Christ's defense. So what is the accusation of the Pharisees? As we keep reading in John 8, they accuse him of claiming to be greater than Father Abraham. Look with me at verses 52 and 53. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Jesus' claim that he could keep people from dying was further proof to the Jews that he surely was demon-possessed. Verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? In other words, if you can keep people from dying, who in the world do you think you are, Jesus? That's a pretty incredible claim. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Who in the world are you, Jesus? That's a superb question that every single person on planet Earth must answer. Nothing else matters but answering this question. It doesn't matter how much money you make, how big your house is, or how many cars you drive, or how many grandkids you have. All that matters is this. Who is Jesus? In 2006, a Newsweek article asked people to give their perspective on the identity of Jesus. Here are some of the results. One person said, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I believe that I am the Son of God. <laughs> that one was funny, I thought. I don't know. The person's a little nutty. Next person, Jesus is about as real as Santa Claus, the tooth fairy, or King Arthur. Next person, Jesus was a man who was nailed to a tree for saying it would be great to be nice to people for a change. Little off point. 
Jesus is a fairy tale for grown-ups. Someone else summarizes by saying, Jesus has been called an intellectual who spouted pithy aphorisms, a Mediterranean cynic leading a wandering band of proto-hippies, an androgynous feminist, an ambassador of Sophia, the female embodiment of divine wisdom, a clever messianic pretender, a gay magician, that one's new, a peasant revolutionary, and a Jewish Zen master. Back to verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus, who in the world are you? And again, everyone must answer this question. Fortunately, Jesus does not leave us in the dark. He tells us exactly who he claims to be. Contrary to my friend Muhammad, Jesus is very, very clear on his identity. He's accused of claiming to be greater than Abraham. What's his defense? He says, I'm not only greater than Abraham, I'm God. Let's keep reading. John 8, 54 to 55. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. This is an amazing statement. Abraham lived 2,000 years before this. Imagine someone in this room saying, Julius Caesar saw my day, and he saw it and rejoiced and was glad. What would you think of that person? That person is nuts. But Christ is saying, Abraham, the father of the faith, 2,000 years ago, saw my day, and he rejoiced, and he was glad. Now, theologians speculate, what does it mean that Abraham saw Christ's day? Well, probably through supernatural guidance and knowledge of types and shadows and promises, somehow Abraham knew about King Jesus 2,000 years in advance. Let's keep reading, verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, again, very strong statement, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now notice, he didn't say, before Abraham was, I was, implying I'm really, really old. That's not what he said. He said, before Abraham was, past tense, I am, present tense. Now, the Jews knew exactly what he was saying, because what does it say next? So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? The penalty for blasphemy, claiming to be God, was death by stoning. These Jewish leaders knew exactly what Christ was claiming. 
He was claiming to be equal with Yahweh. Going back to Exodus chapter three, remember that story? God appears to Moses and says, Moses, I'm gonna use you to redeem Israel. And Moses says, that's great, but what's your name, God? And God says, my name is, I am that I am. Jesus is saying, I am that I am. In other words, I am equal with Yahweh. I am equal with God the Father. I share the same essence with God the Father. Therefore, you must bow down and worship me. And the Jews knew exactly what he was saying because they picked up stones to kill him. Don't tell me that Jesus never claimed to be God. Right here, he's very clearly saying, I am God. I am equal with Yahweh. Now, back to my Muslim friend. Again, Muhammad said to me, Dave, Muslims believe that Jesus was a great person, a great teacher, and a great prophet. But he was not God. C.S. Lewis famously responds to this statement with these words. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's exactly what my friend Muhammad said to me. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Summary. You can't say that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher but didn't claim to be God because of the things that Jesus said. Jesus said that he was God, and because he's God, he demands absolute allegiance and loyalty to him. He says in the Gospels that if you don't love me more than your father, mother, sister, and brother, you cannot be my disciple. And Jesus also makes it very clear that there are times when we must give up our lives in service to him. If he's not God and he said those sorts of things, you and I should not call him a great moral teacher. He was an evil moral teacher. I mean, if someone in here said to you, you must all worship me and give me all obedience and respect, you would think that person is nuts. That person is a megalomaniac. That person's a narcissist. That person is not a good teacher because that person would not be God. 
If his claims were false, and he knew they were false, he was a liar. If his claims are true, and he proved they were true by rising from the dead, then he must be worshipped. There's only three possibilities with Jesus. He was either a liar, he was crazy, a lunatic, or he was Lord of all. Let me help you eliminate two of those possibilities. Consider a list of two different types of people. On one hand is a list of the most influential people to ever live on planet Earth. And by every objective means, Jesus Christ is by far the most influential person to ever live. If you don't believe me, read the fantastic book called Jesus Skeptic. The author argues with all kinds of evidence that no one has had as much of an influence for good in the world as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's one list. The other list is a list of all the people who claimed to be God. That's a much smaller list. And here's the thing. Rarely is someone on both lists. Why? Because the people that claim to be God, generally speaking, are nutty. They're crazy. Therefore, they have no influence on the world or those around them. But Jesus Christ is on both lists. He claimed to be God. Those closest to him believed that he was God. And he's had the greatest influence on the history of the world because he was God. The most logical conclusion to draw is that Jesus Christ was not a liar. The resurrection disproves that. He was not crazy. His influence proves that. Therefore, we must conclude that he is, in fact, God. Now again, I know that most of you in here believe that. You believe that claim, praise God. But are you living like that claim is true? Since Jesus is God, we must bow before him. Since Jesus is God, we must do whatever he says joyfully and cheerfully, since he is God, he lays claim to every single square inch of our lives. He wants to be honored and glorified in your speech, in what you read, in what you watch on Netflix, and how you surf the web, and how you raise your kids, and how you love your spouse, and how you give your money away, and how you serve your neighbors. He lays claim to every single centimeter of your life. He's God. He must be worshiped and obeyed. If he's God, he has the power to help you with your greatest struggles. This is the God who spoke the universe into existence out of nothing by the power of his word. Do you think that he has power to help you when you are unreconciled to your spouse or angry at your kids or reluctant to talk to your Muslim friend or your Hindu friend or your atheist friend? Jesus has the power to help you with no matter what you're dealing with. He's God. And furthermore, if he is God, he has the power to suffer and die in your place, removing the guilt of all of your sins. A man could not do that. Jesus Christ had to be 
fully God and fully man to save us. He had to have two natures. Why? He had to be human because human beings sinned. And for God to remain just, a human had to be punished on the cross. Jesus Christ also had to be God. Why? Only someone who is divine is worthy enough or valuable enough to suffer for the sins of all those who put their hope and trust in Jesus. He was fully God and fully man. He had to be both to save us, and he was both, which means that you and I can live like we are forgiven, redeemed children of God. Are you living this week like Jesus Christ is God? Are you humbling yourself before him, submitting every square inch of your life to him and trusting him to help you grow in godliness and trusting him to forgive you? This claim has all kinds of implications for how we live our lives. Over the years, a lot of people have claimed a lot of things, a lot of crazy things, but not many people have claimed as much as King Jesus. In our passage, he claims to be able to save us from death, and he claims to be God. And these are claims you cannot simply ignore. If there's even the slightest possibility that these claims are true. You owe it to yourself to invest every minute this week exploring these claims. Because if these claims are true, nothing else matters. And all the evidence points to the fact that these claims are true. And if they are true, we must devote our entire lives in service to King Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for King Jesus. We thank you that he unambiguously claimed to be God, and because he's God, he can save us from the fear of death. He can forgive us. He can empower us to do things that are pleasing to you. Lord, we confess that we don't live like these things are true. We, we live like Christ is not God so often. Lord, help us to repent of our sins. Help us to joyfully obey and submit to Christ's commands. We thank you that Christ will return someday and make all things right and make all things new and usher in the new creation and give us our glorified resurrection bodies. We long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, before we take communion, let's pause for a moment of silent reflection. And I want you to ask yourselves, is there any area of your life right now that you are not fully submitting to Jesus, who is God, King of kings and Lord of lords? Let's pause for a moment. <laughs>